Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Romans chapter 12, and in a few words for some church family matters while, uh, while y'all are turning. Uh, one is uh, the new building is uh, looking amazing. It is this little bit close, uh, this little bit from being done just a millimeter away. Uh, we would have taken possession this past week, uh, but they had a supply issue. Uh, so if you didn't get my email, uh, we had intended to do the move uh, today. That is pushed off towards uh, next week. Um, so that I don't have to backtrack announcing things and then undoing those, I'll hold off on announcing when the very first Sunday in the new building is going to be until the keys are in our hand and we know these things are going to happen. Then I'll send that message out in an email and I'll announce it at the next service, etc. But uh, additionally, one of the things I've wanted to pass on is um, I am I am thankful to God and, and thankful for you all in that throughout this process, there has been a spirit of goodwill and, and we have had peace through this. The church family uh, has conducted uh, themselves with humility, with patience, with care for one another, uh, love for one another. And it is not a given <laughs> that that will happen every time a church has a building uh, project. Uh, if it is the, the case that we go through all of this and there is not a major quarrel, uh, we will need to add uh, another lesson in the church history lesson. And it will be the first time in Baptist history that there was a building project without a major quarrel. And so I'm extremely thankful that we have been through this, you know, because um, when, when a church goes through something like this, I mean, th th this is a test. There's a lot of decisions. There's a lot of work to be done. Uh, there's, there's stress. Uh, I, I forget who it was, but on a recent Wednesday night uh, when someone was praying for the church, one of the things they mentioned in their prayer was there are even uh, marriages that sometimes end when they decide to build a house together. You know, uh, take that project even larger and then now add 150 more people to it than that. And there's the potential for strife. There's the potential for difficulty. But I'm so thankful that Throughout this process, there has been this humility and patience with one another. Um, and so don't mess it up, okay? But things have gone really well, uh, and I'm grateful for that. But I wanted to just kind of give a word of encouragement. We're not done yet. Let's finish strong. And along those lines, here's, here's kind of one last little coaching word um, uh, as, as we get ready to move into the new place. So a little coaching to help us maintain that peace. The first time you go into the new building, you will probably see some things that you would have done differently and maybe even some mistakes here and there that you might find. And it would at least be tempting to out loud uh, say some things like, well, that was dumb. Why'd they do that? Or they should have done it like this, that kind of thing. And you could understand how that would be disheartening for some of those folks in the church who have put actual 
blood, sweat, and tears into this project. Um, so, so, so let's be mindful of those kinds of things. We've had numerous of these little coaching moments. There's another. There may be some more to come in the future. But we are very close from no longer being in this cramped little place. And we are thankful to God for all the ways he has answered our prayers and blessed. Let's turn our attention to the word of God. Romans chapter 12. I'm excited that we come to a new paragraph here. I'm going to read verses 14 through 21, then we'll pray and ask for God's help. So please follow along with me. Romans 12, beginning in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Our great God, Lord, you are worthy for all of the ends of the earth to give obedience to you. But you are, you're worth even more. You're worthy for all the ends of the earth to love you and to worship you. You are worthy for all creatures to bow the knee of submission to you. But God, you're you're worthier still. You're worthy for all creatures to delight in you, to rejoice in your glory, seeing who you are in your handiwork, and then most especially in seeing what you have done in Christ to purchase souls from hell. Lord, we who are your people, we who are trusting in Christ, we worship you, O oh God. We thank you. We love you. We delight in you. And we pray, O oh God, that you'll help us to learn from your word in, and how to obey you even more, O oh God. Fathers, we come to this text. We ask that you'll send your spirit to shine light. We ask, O oh God, that you'll give us understanding. We, we pray, Lord, for even the simple and obvious things like the grace to be able to pay attention and not drift off in our thoughts. But Lord, we, we pray for more than this. We ask, oh God, for the supernatural work that only you can do, where you take your word and you transform us by it. So I pray for those who are trusting in Christ and I ask, oh God, that you will work and work mightily. Teach us convict us, challenge us, encourage us, strengthen us, uh, transform us, make us holy, bring us to obedience, bring us to service. Uh, Lord, we pray, apply your word to us. But Lord, we also pray for any in the room that has not yet turned to Christ, not yet believed on him in order to be saved from their sins. I ask, O God, that you will come and give them understanding of the gospel, draw them to yourself so that they want this. Lord, please work. We also pray for our little ones uh, next in the next room. We ask, O God, that you give them grace 
to learn your word, to believe it and be saved. Please protect and bless them. And God bless us here. Help me to be useful and bless all of us as we bow before you in reading your word, oh God, give help. And we ask all these things through Christ. Amen. When the church was born and the gospel was sweeping through the Roman Empire, and for the first time in world history, masses of Gentiles were entering the kingdom of God, one of the things that is helpful to remember is that it was not neat and tidy. Uh, the birth of the church was messy. Just about every gospel movement through history has been messy. This is a cursed world with sinners involved. But as these Gentiles especially were leaving paganism, leaving idolatry, leaving a lifestyle of debauchery, it was, it was a shocking kind of turn when they began to leave their paganism behind and live as a follower of Christ Jesus. If uh, you read any uh, ancient Greek history, literature, you'll find that the Greeks liked to party. And one of the things that they were known for, especially in cities like the city of Corinth, which had a uh, temple to a fertility goddess, is that one of the ways that they celebrated and, quote, worshipped uh, their gods and goddesses was by at festivals throughout the year was participating in drunken orgies and sex with prostitutes. This was a dramatic shift that is hard for us to comprehend what it meant to leave idolatry and to then begin to treat Jesus as Lord. They had an old lifestyle that was normal to them. And then now there is this shocking revolution. There's just no way for us to understand how, uh, how, how dramatic of a shift this was to become a follower of Christ. And you can imagine a, a pagan coming to faith in Christ. You know, whenever they began to live as a Christian, they wouldn't have a hundred questions. They'd have a thousand of, of every subject and everything going on. And here became one of those many questions that these new believers, but especially new believers coming out of paganism, had. Now that I'm a Christian, how am I supposed to relate to my old friends? Now, now that I'm a Christian, how am I supposed to interact with those people who reject Christ? Am I supposed to frown at them or smile at them? You can understand, you, you know, you and I have grown up with cultural Christianity. Okay, you, we, we have not grown up in a land that has loved the true word of God. But we have grown up in a place with cultural Christianity. Almost everybody knows the Sermon on the Mount. So you've heard your entire life, love your enemies, etc. But imagine you're coming out of paganism and you don't know all of those things. This was actually one of the questions that early believers wrote to the apostles and they would ask these kinds of questions. So for instance, in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, one of the things that's happening in that book is that uh, that group of uh, new Christians and they were coming out of paganism, dark, ugly paganism in the city of Corinth there. They, as new believers, wrote to the apostle Paul and ask a number of questions. And in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul goes down the line and he answers a bunch of them. 
And, you know, some of their questions pertain to this very thing we're looking at in chapter seven of that book. One of the questions that they had asked ask was, can we marry unbelievers? Well, what if I am already married to someone who's not a follower of Christ? Should I, should I divorce them and go find a Christian spouse? I mean, how should we interact with the world? How are we supposed to live in relation to outsiders? You know, it's a question that the modern church doesn't ask very much. It, it seems kind of foreign to us. It shouldn't be a foreign question, but it is probably because of living in a land of cultural Christianity and the lines have been so blurred. Well, Christian, the lines are getting clearer right now. And it is a question that we believers need to be asking. Well, this passage that we're ready for in Romans 12 here, 14 to 21, is addressing that very subject. We've just come out of a paragraph where we spent numerous weeks looking at the instructions of how we are to interact with one another as followers of Christ. So as a Christian treating another Christian, how's the church family supposed to live? But now we're entering a new subject. And the subject is, how are we supposed to relate to those who are not followers of Christ? In this section of 14 to 21, well, really extends beyond that, because whenever you get into chapter 13, um, what are we looking at there? In chapter 13, we begin with, how is the Christian supposed to interact with our governing rulers? Well, little word of uh, advice for you here. If you have not figured this out, it is generally the case that our governing leaders are not followers of Christ. I know that is shocking to you. But as we learn about how are we supposed to interact with those who are not in Christ, this section that we're entering here is addressing those things. Various groups of people loving our neighbors and loving our enemies, etc. All of this is addressed. And so what I'm going to do this morning is uh, introduce us to kind of this whole section, this whole topic from the Bible. And so uh, I'll spend a bit of time looking at our responsibilities towards outsiders. And then we'll get started in the text with looking at just the first couple of exhortations from this passage. So here's, here's where we'll begin. Let's just take some time considering our responsibilities towards outsiders. Now, if you're new to studying the Bible, I want to make this crystal clear of what we're talking about. Who are we referring to? You know, the world uses the word outsider in a way different than what the Bible does. The Bible does use this kind of language. So follow this with me. Those who believe the message of the gospel and turn from rebellion and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, placing their faith in Him, trusting in Him as Lord, Savior, Messiah, prophet, priest, and king, and bow the knee. At the moment of genuine faith, that soul is forgiven of their sins and made right with God. There's a host of miracles that happens at that instant. The moment of genuine faith. That person is made right with God, washed of their sins, legally cleansed before God, given precious promises, promises greater than we can even imagine. Saved from the hell that we deserve and given the promise of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven to come. And that soul joins, uh, enters uh, 
a group of people, a group of people that the Bible calls by a number of different names. I've rattled these off to you before. Sometimes the Bible just refers to this group of people as the people of God. Saints, meaning holy ones, the household of God, the Israel of God, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, God's field, God's vineyard, God's temple. And one of the important ones is the church, the church. And I mean the church with a capital C. So, so this is a local church. This is a local assembly of believers. But then there is the church universal, every believer on the face of the earth. And scripture says, the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows who is in this group. He knows the exact count. He knows the exact number. He knows the number of hairs on the head of each one of his people. The Lord knows the distinction between those who are truly his and those who think that they are his but are not. The, you know, we are not able to look into anyone's hearts and see if there is genuine faith, but the Lord does. And actually, the Bible has some different words to refer to those um, who think that they are Christians but are not genuinely right with God, who are false Brethren, this is language that the Bible uses and we'll see more. This is why we sometimes speak of the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is the church as we see it, but we won't get that perfectly right. We look around physically with our physical eyes and see a group of people and who we think are Christians. That's, that's the physical church, but the, the, the visible church. But the invisible church is the church as God sees it. And the Lord knows those who are His. But part of the point that I'm trying to get to and, and formulate in our minds is there is a people, a people of God. It is a defined people of God. And there is an in and there is an out. You are either right with God or you are not. You have either turned to Christ and so had forgiveness of your sins, or you are still trusting yourself or something else. You're either in or you are out. If you look over to one passage with me that shows a little bit of this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I am going to have you turn into a lot of different places this morning. Uh, if you can't get there, it's fine. I'll read everything out loud. 1 Corinthians 5, it's an incredibly important chapter when it comes to understanding church membership church discipline. Um, but there's a little section here that applying uh, some of what we're talking about that is helpful for us. First Corinthians 5, if you start in verse 9 there and read down through the section, what's happening here is that in this chapter, there is a specific man in the Corinthian church who had uh, begun to live in ongoing unrepentant sin. And Paul's message to the church there is, you are to place him outside of the fellowship. But watch this language that comes at the very end here. Verse nine, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? 
But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now notice several things here. This is a jam-packed chapter with a lot going on, but for our context here, Paul had previously written to these Christians and he wrote them in a letter that we don't have. And he told them, don't associate with immoral people. But the Corinthian Christians had misunderstood what he meant. And so as we ask the question, how are we supposed to interact with outsiders? Well, there is some implied message there. Paul says, I did not at all mean for you not to associate with immoral people of the world. But what I did say is, don't associate with a so-called brother who lives in ongoing unrepentant sin. For that person, you're not even to eat with such a one. But if we ask the question for our subject today, what does this mean when it comes to how we interact with the world? Here's one of the things it doesn't mean. We are not to take what we might call you know, the Amish approach. And I don't mean that to be cruel, where we try to leave the world. You can't leave the world. And God doesn't want us to. God wants us to be sprinkled amongst the unbelievers of the world for one big reason, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Part of the, 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 the whole mission of the Great Commission is that we are to be in the world, living as Christians, speaking the truth and bringing souls into the kingdom. But also secondly, notice that Paul uses this language of inside and outside. Outside of what? The church, the people of God. And the point being that there is a group. There's a people who belong to Christ. When someone professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and, uh, and obeys with baptism, we treat them as a Christian. We, we don't know their hearts, but we treat them as a Christian. We regard them as a Christian unless we're given some kind of clear reason not to, like the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who began to live in ongoing unrepentant sin. And then if, if they will not leave their ongoing deliberate sin, then the Bible tells us that they are to be put outside of the fellowship of the visible church. We are to regard them as an outsider. And if you think that sounds mean, let me remind you, the Lord Jesus is the one who told us these things. Over in Matthew 18, in that section of verses 15 through 18, Jesus is the one who told us how we are to uh, operate in these kinds of things. Jesus says, that if there is a brother, someone who is professing the name of Christ, and he enters into sin, what did Jesus say? First step, go and talk to him privately. If he will not leave his sin after that, go and get one or two more and go try to convince this man to leave his sin, to repent. If he doesn't listen then, then tell it to the church. And the whole church, the whole local assembly contacts the man to say, please leave this rebellion, turn from your sin. And then Jesus says, if the man still will not leave his sin, here's the last step. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We just saw Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5, we are not even to eat with such a one. 
So if you think that's mean, take it up with Jesus. I'm just the messenger. It is righteous and it is good, but you do need to know, okay, um, I'm getting tired of hearing uh, the world use the language of Christ-like so much and they've never read three pages of what Christ actually said. What is actual Christ-like? Read Jesus's words, okay? This is what our Lord Jesus has said. But the part that I'm getting at that I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to emphasize for today is there's an inside and an outside. There's the body of Christ and then there is the world. And we are asking the question, how are we supposed to live and relate to those who don't follow Christ? We have to first understand there's a distinction. There's a people of God. There are those who have embraced Christ. And there are those that have not. I mean, I, I, I pause here to just make the appeal to you. If, if any of you here have never turned to Christ in this way, never understood that you must be saved because you are under the wrath of God, you, you deserve punishment because you have sinned. So have I. But the work of Christ on the cross was to pay the price of justice for sins to make the offer that any who will come to him, any who will come and seek forgiveness of sins by placing your faith in him, you will be brought into this people of God. There, there's a, here's Jesus's metaphor. My sheep hear my voice. Jesus has a people, a sheep, a fold. You're not in that group if you won't enter through the door of Christ. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the gate to the fold. By placing your faith in Christ, you enter this group of people. And there's an inside and an outside. And as we think about how this applies to help us understand back in Romans 12, what we see happening in the passage of Romans 12 is addressing how we are to relate to those who are not among the people of God. What exactly are our responsibilities? towards them. We saw we have a great deal of responsibilities to other Christians, like meeting their needs and showing hospitality, etc. But what are our responsibilities towards those of the world? Well, before we look at all the things that Romans 12 have to say, I'm still kind of introducing it from the whole Bible. Turn with me back to the Old Testament, if you will. If, you, if you'll jump to uh, the book of Leviticus. And yes, I did say Leviticus. And if you wonder, <laughs> why would we go there? <laughs> Isn't all of that old and done? Please see me after the service, if that's what you're thinking, so I can discipline you. Uh, just kidding. Um, <clears throat> but what, what, here's, here is, in all seriousness, one thing I do want to tell you. Last year on Wednesday nights, we took a 10-week little series, and uh, we, we looked at how we relate to the law and difficult parts of the law. It is one of the most important studies we've done in the life of the church, just because there's so much confusion and difficulty over how are we as New Covenant Christians supposed to see and understand the Old Testament and especially the law. So to summarize 10 weeks in two sentences, okay, here is the, here's the general gist of it, okay? Every single sentence of the Old Testament and the law still instructs the Christian as we live in the new covenant. We are no longer under the law of Moses. Jesus has fulfilled that. But every single sentence still teaches and instructs us. Um, Presbyterians tend to use a phrase that I find very helpful, and it is the general equity of the law still applies to us. And so what, what that means is every single thing that is in the law of Moses has a way that it does apply to us in the new covenant. Some of them apply in a different kind of way. So for instance, we still make sacrifices in this new covenant, 
but we no longer make blood sacrifices because Jesus fulfilled that. But now we make the sacrifices of like Psalm 50 we read for our call to worship this morning, the sacrifices of thanksgiving, etc. But this is still this is still a part of what it means to obey God. So everything that is in the law still speaks to the Christian, but we have to apply it through uh, the lenses of Christ. So go to Leviticus, if you go to chapter 19, please. <clears throat> What happens in, in Leviticus 19 is there's a further expounding of the law, the law at Sinai. The law, capital L, proper, uh, we find in Exodus chapters 20 through 23. But what happens in the rest of Leviticus and Exodus, uh, Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is there is a further explanation of the law and it goes further and so watch some of what happens here in, in Leviticus. I'm going to read verses 9 through 18, but, but before we do that, jump to verse 18, the end, because the central idea is stated at the end here. So look what it says. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Yes, that is in the Old Testament as well as the New if you were thinking that's only a New Testament thing, it is not. What happens is here's about a dozen practical ways to love your neighbor. And then the, the central idea is stated at the end. So start in verse nine with me and let's see this. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now pause there. Here is how to love the poor among you, the, your neighbor who is impoverished. Do you see practical instruction that God gave? That there is, there is harvest they could have taken, but God said, I want you to intentionally leave some in the field and then let the stranger, the passerby, the impoverished, go to your fields and pick up the gleanings. Practically speaking, here is a way to love your neighbor. Look at verse 11. You shall not steal, because that's unloving, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him, the wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning if you are an employer. And regarding the employee, how do you show love there? There was a practical one for their culture in that day. Verse 14, you shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall not do injustice in judgment. Pause there for just a second. There is a whole book in itself. One of the ways you love your neighbor is by upholding justice in the land. That is also helpful for us to understand today when it comes to some of the questions that sometimes people have about loving your neighbor and your enemy. Well, does this mean we can't prosecute criminals? Because this would be unloving. Okay. We're going to talk about some more of those kinds of things in the future, but for now, see, no, 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 this is not contrary to justice. Upholding justice in the land is loving your neighbor and the stranger and the alien, etc. Verse 15, you shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. 
And you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So you, you, you notice there a, a number of practical ways in the law. Here is how you love your neighbor. And so the, one of the things that we continuously see in scripture is the banner that flies over this is Love one another. We saw that in the body of Christ. Here's practically how you do it. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Now here's practical ways to do that. By the way, in the book of Romans, Paul follows essentially the exact same um, sort of line of thinking. Back in Romans, uh, I'll just read this very quickly. In Romans 13, uh, starting in verse 8, which comes at the end of that section that we've been talking about of uh, neighbors and strangers and aliens, etc., and governing leaders. Romans 13, 8, it says this, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Back in Leviticus 19, if you look towards the end of the chapter there, there's more to see. We're going to see uh, another group, a couple more groups introduced here. So Leviticus 19, if you find verse 32, we'll read a few verses there, also addressed in the law. Verse 32, you shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And by the way, again, just briefly right after this, we have more uh, language on the matters of justice and judgment, that justice is to be upheld in the land. And this time it is applied so that the alien and the stranger also have justice in your land. All of this is addressed. So we have a couple more categories. If we first look at uh, 9 to 18 and say this is the section addressing how to love your neighbor, 32 to 34 addresses here is how to love the stranger among you. Here is how to love the alien in your midst. And if we ask the question, well, what is the difference between my neighbor and a stranger, etc.? Well, glad you ask. A man asked Jesus the, the, almost the exact same question in the New Testament. So, so go with me to the book of Luke, if you will. You, you might throw a, a pen or something in Leviticus, because we're going to go back close to there again. But go to Luke chapter 10 with me. And I know I'm kind of going the long way around everything that I'm explaining here. It's what preachers do. Uh, but let me set up a little context here for just a moment. Luke chapter 10. Here's what happens. In this section, Jesus is teaching. And a man comes up to Jesus and asks this question. Good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? It's a question Jesus was asked numerous times. And how does Jesus respond? He responded in the way that he often did. Uh, Brother Jeff in Sunday school not long ago addressed this. What does Jesus do? The very first thing he says is, well, what does the law say? 
Now watch why he does this. Before we understand our need for forgiveness, we have to understand our guilt. Before we understand our guilt, we have to understand the law of God. So repeatedly what the Bible does when it explains, how do I have eternal life? The very first place the Bible does is go to the law. And what the law shows is, I have broken this law. I cannot keep this to perfection. I need something else. I need forgiveness. So that's what Jesus is doing here. He did this with the rich young ruler. You know, this kind of thing happens all the time. So he asked, what, am I, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And the man rattles off several commandments, including Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replied when the man had rattled off these several commandments, he said, very good, do these and you will live. Because that is true, right? Haven't we seen the Bible show in the book of Romans? If we could keep the law to perfection, absolutely you would have eternal life based on your goodness, based on your works. But none of us can do that. We need forgiveness of sins. We need a savior. We need grace. That's what Jesus was leading him to. And he did get him there. Because what must I do to have eternal life? What does the law say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, very good. Do these and you will live. Watch verse 29. Verse 29 of Luke 10. And wishing to justify himself. What's he doing here? He saw, I have not kept this law. Jesus says, keep the law and you will live. He sees, I have not kept it. And there's one in particular that he had not kept and he did not want to keep. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, there's a little background to this that's helpful to know. See, the Pharisees, the Pharisees had taken the command in Leviticus 19:18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And they had manipulated it. They had twisted the Bible. I know we know nothing about this today and you have no idea what this looks like. Okay, but let me just say, in history, some people have done some things like this. They took the Bible and twisted it into what they wanted it to say. They took Leviticus 19:18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. And they said this, yeah, sure, love your neighbor, but you can hate your enemy. Now the Bible doesn't say that. And it's really important that you know the Bible doesn't say that. Because Jesus addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. There's, there's a section there in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There are people with a, 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 an agenda to distort the Bible who often go to the Sermon on the Mount. And when they're done with it, they come to this conclusion. Jesus did away with the Old Testament because he over and over again, he says, you have heard that it was said, but now I say to you, you have to understand every single time that Jesus does that. And I think it's like half a dozen. He is correcting a misunderstanding, a bad interpretation that they had come to from the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus even says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus did not undo the Old Testament. He was correcting their bad interpretations of it. So this was known in the day. It was a debate amongst the people. Who really is my neighbor? Sure, I'll love my neighbor, but I want to be able to hate 
my enemies. I want to be able to hate those dirty Gentiles. I want to be able to hate those dirty Samaritans who live up to the north of us. Who really is my neighbor? Jesus answers by telling a parable. It's a parable that we often call the parable of the good Samaritan. So yes, now finally, let's read the text. Luke 10, verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So numerous points that Jesus makes in this parable. You know, one being, who did Jesus choose to be kind of the hero of this parable? a Samaritan, one of the ones that the many of the Jewish men, the Pharisees in particular, wanted to be able to hate. They wanted to classify in this, in this, in this category, not my neighbor. But you also notice the, the specific wording and how Jesus redirected the conversation where it needed to go. The man asked, who is my neighbor? And what was the point of Jesus's parable? Go and be a neighbor. You go out into this world and you go be a neighbor to others. But for our purpose in some of the things we're looking at, here is some of what is helpful to us. Here's one of the conclusions. Our neighbor is anyone we come into contact and have dealing with. Your neighbor is someone that you have some kind of dealing with. So yes, the people who live next door to you, sure, they are your neighbors, but you have more neighbors than that. So is your accountant and your classmates and your coworkers. And Jesus's call is for us to go be a neighbor, go have dealing with others. But we set off on that kind of uh, sub point, we'll call it not a rabbit trail, a sub point to answer this question, what's the difference between my neighbor and the stranger? Well, your neighbor are those you have dealings with. Your stranger, the stranger are those that you don't. So we have several categories that the Bible is introducing to us here. You know, so we have brothers and sisters in Christ. By the way, that would include also the believers in North Korea that you have never met. Okay, even though you've never met them, they are brothers and sisters. So there's the brothers and sisters, and that's within the body of Christ. But then on the outside of those of who are in Christ, there's your neighbor. The, the ones you have dealing with. There's your stranger, the one that you don't. There's the alien, and as Leviticus 19 defined that, that's those who are not from here, but who reside among you. They may be pilgrims and sojourners who are just passing through. This may be the refugee who is not from here, but comes to a, a place here. So here we have these various categories, and what the Bible is doing is showing us 
various ways for how we are to love, how we are to love those who are outside. You, you notice that section there in Leviticus 19 when we read it, that we are to love the alien. Well, God spoke to the Israelites and he said, you are to love the alien among you. Do you remember why? The reason that he gave them. For you were once aliens living in the land of Egypt. Exodus 23, 9. You shall not oppress a stranger since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger. For you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. So what God told the Israelites is, you are to treat the sojourners in your land as you wish the Egyptians had treated you. Now, by the way, and this is intentional, the book of Leviticus still speaks to us. Because Christian, you and I, we are aliens. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims living in a land that is not our home. We are figuratively living in the land of Egypt, enduring hardship, waiting to cross that Jordan River into the promised land. All of that is intentional, by the way. All of it is meant to speak to you and I. Leviticus does still address us. We have to apply it in the right kind of way, but it does still speak to us. So we've covered various kinds of groups here. Have we covered every kind? Every kind of outsider, the neighbor, the stranger, the alien. Is that every group? No, you know it's not. There's still the group we'd rather not talk about, your enemy. And that is actually where our text in Romans 12 uh, begins. So if you'll flip back to Romans 12 with me. In this, this whole chapter, there's this whole section, this paragraph, uh, 14 to 21, there is some instruction that addresses every single one of these groups, neighbors, strangers, aliens, enemies. In this paragraph, I count uh, 17 exhortations. You could count a little differently. It depends on things like verse 21. Do you count that as one exhortation or two? I counted it as two. So we're gonna work our way in weeks to come through these 17 exhortations. I wanna get us uh, started into the text let's look at the first two of them. In verse 14, I've counted them as two. So read verse 14. These are the first two of the exhortations. Bless those who persecute you. That's one. Bless and do not curse. Now, when it comes to how we relate to our enemies, we've spent some time in the law already. Let's, let's go back to the law once again and see more of what it has to say. In Exodus chapter 23, Exodus 23, so this is that section that is the law, the law of Moses, the law at Sinai. Exodus 23, if you find verses four and five, I'll read that. It says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him practical, here's how you love your enemy, practical way of doing that. That then can be expounded upon, which it is later in the Old Testament. If you will jump to the book of Proverbs with me. Proverbs chapter 24. We've been walking through the book of Proverbs on Wednesday nights. Proverbs 24, find verse 17. Give you just a second to turn there. Proverbs 24, 17, look what it says here. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. 
or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. And then jump to the New Testament again. Matthew chapter five. If you'll go to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew five through seven is that Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever preached. And in Matthew five, we have a section here that we've alluded to. So find verse 43, Matthew five, verse 43. And let's read this, this section here. So verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor in the Bible and hate your enemy. People made that part up. So that's what we were referring to. Now continue. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now that last section is the most significant of everything that we have looked at. It's the most weighty passage there. Remember that we've seen this numerous times. Um, it is oftentimes the case that what's happening in the New Testament is that Jesus addressed some topic, some subject, taught on something, and the apostles then later did, when they wrote scripture, exactly what they were commissioned to do. They took the words of Jesus and they further explained them, further clarified them. Really, a lot of what is happening in Romans 12 is Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is further teaching things that Jesus said. Jesus addressed this, Paul is uh, giving further explanation. And so here's what we see. To those who curse our name, to those who insult us to our face, to those who slander us behind our back, to those who gossip about us, to those who spread lies, to those who persecute, to, lo to those who spit on you, how are we supposed to respond? You grew up with cultural Christianity. But imagine that you were a Corinthian who came to faith in Christ and you're trying to figure all this out. I think we could understand how some of them had some confusion and think, well, this person who's cursing me, they're an enemy of God. They hate Jesus. They're under his wrath. Maybe it is okay if I hurl an insult back. That way he knows just how big of an idiot he really is. I think we could see how some of those early Christians may have had these kinds of questions. But instead, here's what scripture tells us. To those who curse us, we are to bless. To those who insult us, we are to speak in kindness to. To those who disrespect us, we are to show courtesy to them. To those who slander, we are to show care for, even behind their back. To those who persecute us, we are to pray for them. For those who are our enemies, we are to develop sympathy, pity, compassion for. And, and Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount how it is that we have the strength to do this. Because, you know, one of the big questions, whenever you really just look at it to somebody that's never been, uh, never seen the Bible before, whenever they get introduced to this kind of thing, this can sound crazy. What do you mean 
I'm supposed to reply in kindness to the one who insults me. Jesus gives us our strength in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they treated the prophets who were before you. Christian, our hope is that in the end, our father is making all things right. In the end, every wrong is going to be undone. If you are in Christ, listen to me, Christian. Not only do you have the the victory of the kingdom of heaven, you will have vindication. And it's not evil to look forward to that. It's Jesus gives this as a right and good motivation to look forward to the day that everyone who has slandered you will wish they had not. You will be honored. You will receive glory. You will be rewarded in the presence of your enemies. That is a hopeful thing. Christian, in the end, you win. You win. To those who hate you, you win. To those who gossip about you, you win. And by faith, we wait. By faith, we wait on the Lord for this. And so it's that confidence. It's that hope that lets us not sweat it. And even, and I know this this part can seem impossible. Church history shows it's not impossible to rejoice, to rejoice when you are slandered for the name of Christ, to rejoice when you are persecuted. There have been believers down through church history who were able to do that, and that includes the apostles. The very first time that the apostles got the tar beat out of them for the name of Christ, what did they do? They walked away rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. How could they rejoice? Because they saw the big picture. In the end, we win. Now, we have a whole lot more that we need to talk about. There's a whole lot I had more in my notes that I took out and placed for some time in the future for the sake of time. You are welcome for that. We won't be here all day. There's a whole lot more that we need to look at in this passage, 14 to 21. It's not done looking at our neighbor. You know, for instance, what does this mean concerning justice? That's a common question. If I'm supposed to love my enemy, can I prosecute a criminal who performs a crime? What about Christians serving in, in the military? Can Christian be a police officer, et cetera, et cetera? For the majority of folks, that's not difficult, but some Christians have some difficulty in their thinking about how does all of this work together. So in the future, we've got more that we need to look at. There's more we've not covered on how to love our enemies. But for today, here's the last thought. I'm going to spend a couple of minutes on this one. A last thought. It is the question, why? Why are we to love our enemies? I mean, if, if, if this is new, this seems crazy. Why am I to love those who hate me? And here is the answer. Because this is the character of the one true and living God. This is the character of our Father. And this is what Jesus addressed in that Sermon on the Mount. At the moment of our rebellion, and by our, I mean mankind, 
at the moment of our rebellion, we deserved punishment and God would have been completely righteous, completely good if he had wiped out mankind at the moment of rebellion. At any point in history, before you and I were born or before you and I were saved, at any point, God could have judged mankind in that final kind of way and, and uh, sent every single one to hell. He has the, the right to do that. He would have remained completely holy, completely righteous, and completely good. But instead, God has shown grace. He has been patient. He has been slow to anger. He's been long-suffering. Grace is when you give to somebody better than what they deserve. And then to you and I individually, God could have, the, the moment that you first knew what you were doing and you broke the law of God knowing what you were doing, God could have sent you straight to hell at that moment. But he let you live. He has provided for you. He has kept your heart beating. He is sustaining you. And when in the Sermon on the Mount, that section we read, Jesus said, we do this so that we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven, for He causes His Son to shine on the evil and the good. Because by the way, you heard that emphasis. It is His Son. It is His reign. He doesn't have to give, He doesn't have to water our crops. He doesn't have to provide food for a planet full of rebels who despise his law and rebel against his rule. He doesn't have to do that. But he continues to give his son and his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. God shows grace to his enemies. So why are we to show grace to our enemies? Because this is what our father does. This is what the one true and living God does. This is how he ordered the cosmos. But then there is a grace that is even greater than the grace of the sun and the rain. What he has done ultimately in Christ is the greatest grace, not only that ever has been done, it's that ever could be imagined. God has shown grace to his enemies in sending his son to bleed and suffer, be tortured, be butchered, die for the justice price of sins, be buried and raised from the dead, all in order to save enemies. And if you're doubting that you are or were an enemy of God, this is what the Bible says. Ephesians 2, you could read there. Romans 3, we are shown just very clearly. If you are in Christ, you are forgiven of your sins. You were once an enemy of God, and now you have been made family of God. You have been brought near. But what that means is if you have never turned to Christ, you are right now an enemy of God. We don't say that to be mean. It's just the reality of what is. You need to know it so that you will remedy the situation. God invites you to come. You can come and have grace. Grace. God will give you mercy in not giving you what you do deserve. And he will give you grace in giving you better than what you deserve. Why do we show grace to enemies? Because this is what God does. God shows grace to his enemies. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, we are worshiping God by remembering 
what he did to accomplish this work of showing grace to enemies. God takes enemies, saves them from their sins, and saves us from our stupidity so that we want to come and be friends with God, so that we want to become and be sons and daughters of God. So before we take the Lord's Supper, let me give some instructions that we need to heed before we partake. First, to here in just a moment, we're going to have a, a moment of silence for some final confession of sin and such, but there are warnings we need to issue. The first is, if you have not turned to Christ for salvation, the Bible says that you are not to partake of the Lord's Supper. Just, just choose not to uh, engage in this. And that's because you have not yet embraced Christ. The Bible says that it would be like trampling the blood of Christ. It is an insult to what he has done. If you will not embrace him, but you partake of the Lord's Supper. And then to the believer, to the one who is in Christ and followed that up with obedience and in baptism, uh, to the believer, the Bible says that we need to be careful that we partake in a, in a kind of way that's not unworthy. Nobody has lived perfect this week. We have sinned this week and we have sinned today. Nobody comes to the Lord's table perfect, but we are to come with a repentant heart, a heart that is wanting to turn away from our sin and in submission to God. So we offer up prayers of confession of our sin, knowing that confession of sin isn't what saves you eternally, but in our ongoing relationship with God, we are to confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us. So let me ask you to close, uh, to, to, to bow for a word of prayer. I'll give a moment of silence, a minute or two of silence for you to pray. And then I'll close this in prayer and give more instructions. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.